Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring life journeys of 21st century spiritual healers. In fact, that is the title of a book and doctoral dissertation by my guest, Dr. Mary Baxter, who is an intuitive consultant, author of Life Journeys of 21st Century Spiritual Healers and also Getting Started with Your Pendulum. She received her doctoral degree for this research from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Hello, Mary. It's good to be with you once again. Good to be with you too, Jeffrey. And today we're going to talk about really what was your specialty, the, the subject that you spent, I'm sure, years studying in, in your doctoral work. How, how is it that people living uh, in these modern times end up uh, choosing a career as a spiritual healer? Yes, yes, because it's not your everyday typical thing. Nobody mentions it as a career in, in the high school guidance counselor office. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, though, it's a very ancient uh, tradition. I mean, people say that shamans are, are probably the world's oldest profession. When I started the study, one of the most interesting readings I did was um, Jean Achterberg wrote a book on um, healers and pointed out that all healing was spiritual healing until the Newtonian um, transformation in science. And up until that point, um, there were always some sort of, you know, calling in of spirit in some way for anyone working with healing. In fact, as I recall reading your book, uh, most of the earliest healers, it seems, were women. Yes. Yeah, it was definite because of the caring. You know, it's the difference between um, healers and technicians. And I think um, Western medicine is very technical and, you know, trains technicians in modalities, um, chemical healing and so forth. But the healer aspect often isn't there. It's like when people go into teaching. Um, teachers have, there's something within them that causes a wanting to teach. And I think that's the case with healers. And women are more naturally the loving caretakers in, in humanity. You point out, uh, for example, that for most of, of human history, if we go back uh, maybe over a million years, uh, humans lived in goddess cultures. Yes, yes. There's uh, so much research that was done. Um, Gimbutas, I think is how we say her name. I've, I've read her work. And archaeology, you know, like 
digging things up, finding artifacts in rivers and so forth, really shows a history in and out of what what of what characterized um, healing or the health of people um, by what they left behind. You know, big differences between ruling classes and the artifacts they left behind and the peasant class um, and what was left behind, the condition of their bones, all that kind of thing. Really fascinating. And all of these um, artifacts were found that had these goddess figures and symbols that just really show that this was where people were looking. It was the nature, the natural world is very associated with the feminine energy. During the Middle Ages uh, and even up almost to modern times, there has been sort of this idea of witchcraft and witches are dangerous and witches are evil. But you you point out that there's some scholarship suggesting that a lot of uh, witchcraft, even into contemporary times, is something of a, a revival of the ancient goddess culture. It is. And I think, you know, different words get um, connotations that just seem negative and definitely witches um, and practicing witchcraft sounds very dark to many people like, oh, definitely something to be avoided. And yet in the Middle Ages and as like the reformation of the church and where there was, you know, the witch hunts and the terrible um, femicide that occurred during those times was really identifying healers and herbalists who had they had the herbs, they had the drugs that relieved pain and, and you know, could do things that um, you needed training. You needed to learn how to do these things. And I, they were characterized as witches at that time. And politically, what I found in my research, and also because of this perspective I was looking at, um, this was a concerted effort of um, the church, at which was male, to take over. They were the original scientists that, you know, were, were in this organization and wanting to take over the art of healing, wanted to be the medical profession. And so to demonize the practitioners who were women, I mean, this is even done today. You know, if you want to um, get people to not look at something, you immediately make it sound extremely negative. Um, if ridicule doesn't get rid of it, then you, you know, go after it with a vengeance. And this is, I think, what really happened to women healers. And I found it fascinating that you pointed out that there was a time around the turn of the 20th century uh, when, when there was a real effort to bring women into medicine and many women became doctors and, and then it was shut down again. 
then there was a tremendous backlash um, in in that way for women not being allowed in schools. And even when they were, there was nowhere for them to go and practice or be interns. They would even have to go, like in the United States, they would have to go. There were certain schools, one or two open in Europe, but it was very difficult Um why I wonder why that is uh, just a a rough road I think for women to hold on to something that comes so naturally to them to be healers. Uh, one of the things that really struck me uh, going through your work is is that uh, the lives of women, the life histories of women, seemed. Uh, in your presentation to be riddled with difficulties and, and trouble, uh, things often having to do with uh, what it's like to be a woman that often men uh, have a different experience. Yeah, that's men and women do have different experiences. And for me, that was very interesting. And I got being a woman experienced it more as I grew up and got older. But I remember as a child, just not getting it, you know, like there is no difference. And um, what at one point, when I realized it, I wanted to be a boy, I wanted to be Timmy on the TV program, Rin Tin Tin. He got to do such cool things. And I remember telling my mother this, um, because I wanted that freedom that I saw in my brother, uh, which was very different than what I was experiencing right in the same family. And in in this research, particularly women who were in um, very rigid Christian um, churches, Mormon, um, Amish, uh, some combinations of religions that were also comprised their lives, like their whole community of what they grew up in, um, experienced like repression. They were not expected to become educated. They were expected to get married very young and start having children. And to, um, I, one of them says, you know, stand by your man, no matter if he was out, um, had left you and was out doing drugs and being with other women and, try, you know, experiencing life um, without you. There was no acknowledgement. Um, and so women were thrown out of their communities as bad people because they were just um, training to become a nurse. So they would have an ability to give a life to to their child. So that was that was kind of alarming to me. Um but very real as something that can be experienced. Um, yeah, re people had um, in this research issues with religion or it seemed to give them some light if, in their lives where they found ritual and at least this acknowledgement that there was something more than the physical world that they could connect with. And so um, everyone knew exactly um, when I asked, okay, you know, what are the, what do you see as the events and, and incidents? What happened in your life that led you to do this work? 
and no one had any trouble exact um, memories and experiences that they knew brought them along, you know, to to that point. So I found that pretty amazing. And I loved it. I just loved it. People know. Now, in, in some of the classical literature of shamanism, um, it's, it's talked, uh, shamans are described as individuals who go through a crisis and then they learn to heal themselves. And in the process of healing themselves in the middle of a terrible, often deathly crisis, uh, they become shamans. And I noticed a very similar pattern in the uh, healers that you wrote about. Yeah, I think that... As each of these women went through their lives, and some had pretty shocking um, experiences of being manipulated or being abused um, throughout their lives or at key, key points, and some giving up, you know, um, one just calling out loud, like, what is this about? You know, please help me. And receiving that help in a spiritual way, seeing angels, um, just, you know, not incarnated beings, hearing voices that loved them and offered them help. And they knew it wasn't a negative thing. It wasn't anything to be afraid of. It gave them hope. And so this whole idea, and even throughout their lives where different things would happen, there was a sense of that there was a point to it all, that they weren't alone, and that you don't, not, no one wallowed in it and stayed feeling victimized because um, they were, you know, in victim situations, some people will stay there and use that, oh, I'm this way because, and then that's it. That's, you know, they a limit to what they're going to do in their lives. But none of these people had that experience. They came out of it with, I think, and I think it gave, such empathy for others. You know, there's an understanding for what other people go through that makes it possible to offer healing because compassion and empathy are such a big part of helping someone heal themselves because that's where it goes, you know, is, is accepting that there's a way and, and being able to do that. Healers help you heal yourself. They don't do anything to you. I think it's useful when we talk about uh, spiritual healing, maybe to try and define it a, a little more, because in one sense, it might be thought of healing of the spirit. I'm, that's probably the most important part of it. But I think most spiritual healers are also known for dealing with physical illness. Well, often that's what puts a person in a desperate state. They have an intense pain, they're given a diagnosis of a potentially deadly illness, and they're going through things to heal using common methods or the prescribed methods, but nothing's getting better. And so I think it's more out of desperation that people seek out 
um, spiritual healing. And it, often it's um, a mental psychological experience. It doesn't just have to be physical. Like I think all energy healers, which could be, I mean, there are many people who practice forms of energy healing, um, like Reiki, um, quantum touch, and so forth, that may not talk about spirit so much, but they're dealing with the field around you, you know, um, giving that idea that something is happening um, beyond the physical. And what I've really learned, and I believe this, that everything is really happening in the invisible before it takes root into our physical experience. If you think, I think science has identified 11 dimensions and we're in the third dimension. These bodies are in the third dimension being affected um, by what is happening. So we have these subtle bodies. Um, we have a chakra system. All of these are identified by in energy healing or Eastern uh, medicine, Chinese medicine, the meridians and so forth. So it's not foreign uh, to think of energy healing. And the spiritual part comes in if we can identify that we have a soul, that we have a spirit aspect to ourselves. Um, and healing at that level, what I find, um, reaches right into the physical body. I mean, it, it cannot help but change um, what is there unless someone um, holds on to it, you know, um, or something has moved so far into the body that it could be difficult. Yet people experience miracles. Um, there are these psychic surgeons out there that do all kinds of things and remove stuff from bodies. Um, to me, very bizarre. Um, and yet I, I can't judge it. I haven't experienced it. And experiencing what I do in healing is it is just miraculous. It is amazing what happens. So an openness to um, something else is beneficial, I think. Well, since you brought up the subject of, of psychic surgery, I did do an interview with James McLennan, a sociologist who studied the phenomenon extensively, and uh, as others have, and, and I'm told by these people that there's a lot of uh, fraud going on. Well, actually, fraud may not be the best word, but tricks. That that uh, shamans who do that often seem to find that if, if you can do a little sleight of hand and pull out a chicken liver and tell somebody you're removing an illness from them, it puts them into a state of awe. And that state of awe may be actually conducive to real healing. It seems to me that uh, this is something that shamans have been doing uh, for a long time. But uh, it, and I'm fascinated. I know there are some medical doctors who have looked into psychic surgery and and do feel that it is quite legitimate. Uh, Andrea Puharich. A surgeon at the University of New York at the time wrote a book about uh, a, a psychic surgeon from Brazil who operated on him personally. So I think it's a mixed bag. I think that the idea of fraud, it can exist everywhere. 
um, including in very traditional medical procedures and doctor's appointments and so forth. Um, But particularly when you're dealing with um, spiritual healing or energy healing, it's something I think people have to look out for. It is, you know, you may be in fear. And, you know, if you're in fear, you can be very susceptible. When I started doing this work, um, that what really came to my attention. And I hear about it all the time where people are afraid, um, you know, are afraid of being tricked. Um, and I, I, there are signs. Um, if you know, you could go to someone for a simple uh, psychic reading and a little tidbit is laid out of something to be afraid of and being hit up for enormous amounts of money. I've had people come to me telling me they've paid someone $40,000, $70,000 to remove a curse. And they're still, you know, experiencing these things and they can't get a hold of the person. That's, I think, terrible. Um, don't do that. Um, this is not the way I work and nor anyone in the study. There really, there are, <clears throat> there's an exchange of money going on because it, it takes time. If it's your profession, if it's your work, there's a need to be compensated, but not um, at extraordinary amounts having no effects and based on fear. I think anytime if you go to someone and they keep planting fear, um, go away from, from that person, you know, um, or if they are, I recently had someone call me, um, who I worked with and taught this method of healing and so forth. And I just was so shocked that, he now was identifying him as like the second coming of Christ and um, very grandiose channelings and so forth. It was very sad um, to hear and then and also to find out somewhat what was happening in his personal life where he was had become very abusive. So this is not a healer, you know. Um, I don't. I think you can only practice healing to the extent that you um, have have healed. Well, you um, describe in your own life. I have to say, of the various crises people have gone through in the process of becoming a healer, uh, your own story is about as dramatic as any I've ever read. It seemed as if you were having simultaneous crises with your children, with your partner, uh, and with your property all at once. That particular circumstance, going through it, um, was just incredible. And I didn't see any way. I I did not understand it um, at all. I just, I couldn't understand it, but I could believe it because it was unrolling right in front of me. And the method that changed it all was the soul clearing and property clearing. And it was the clearing, the, the identification of presence of entities of history that had happened on that land combined with similar information about me, uh, my p- 
partner, my my children at the time, all coming together like in this incredible storm um, that I would not wish on anyone. And in in hindsight, you know, it's great that it's in the past. And while that was such an experience, it out of it came. Um, this beautiful healing, this finding of what for me was my life purpose that I wasn't finding in typical, you know, going to grad school, learning to become a psychologist. I, it wasn't doing it for me. And when this happened and this way of being, this way of healing was experienced, I knew that was, that was why I had that experience. How else would I have found it? And who knows? Maybe I would have found it in some more gentle way later. Um, but that's what happened. Even though there was this seeming like miraculous transformation of that property, the relationships in the family, it didn't stay like that. Um, as time went on, there would be eruptions that I would look at, like, how could this be happening? And so I really learned from all of that to grow, that there were changes I was very reluctant to make that eventually simply had to be made. And, you know, I think that's part of the learning process of um, not only learning to heal others, but having to heal myself. I think as a healer, you only have the capacity to heal for others as much as you are able to do it for yourself, or you just don't understand, you don't know. And in all of the healers that you've written about, the 10 you studied and three others I know that you have included uh, biographical information of, it seems as if one of the consistent patterns is this overcoming of crisis. And, and on occasion, it's, it's not just one crisis, it's a series of repeated crises uh, without falling victim to them, at least for long. Yeah. I think that is really key that there is, I remember feeling like a victim and I knew who my victimizer was. And I, that was a big part of my identity for a long time as I went through that. And I was really helped by, it irritated me to hear someone say to me, well, you're not a victim in this situation. And yet that stuck with me. Because how could that be said? And then learning and realizing what, what was I choosing? What was I doing? Um, that was keeping me in that situation. And it can be really scary, very difficult to make the changes that we need to make to get out of those kinds of circumstances. Um, but it can be done. And then once we do it, we have a whole new set of things that we understand and can offer to others. For many years, as I worked as a healer, what I knew how to do for women in difficult relationships was how to stay in it and be calm, how to function within that dysfunction. And not until I broke out of that and let it go and 
did a whole other level of my life opened up and I, and also, um, my healing practice just exploded. Um, because I think people want to learn how to really transform their lives and not just how to, kind of deal in in really difficult. If you can get out of something, very good. If you cannot, you learn how to live within it. And we all have different opportunities. It seems to me that, that one of the crucial issues for a spiritual healer has to do with stigma, self-esteem, and sort of living on the margins of, of society. You, you know, just... Um, just this week, I released a, a video with one of my oldest and dearest friends who is now a spiritualist minister who spent seven years in prison. And he, he talked very openly about what that time in prison meant to him and how, it, in his particular case, it was an opportunity to meditate and to actually achieve a state of oneness, which uh, led to very dramatic transformations uh, in his life. But these are things that some people can never get over the embarrassment of. Nelson Mandela, look at what happens to this person and the life and what he became. Um, Malcolm X, you know, famous people who spent time in prison. Um, it does not, you can stay a victim of it and just feel really bad and other people just create so much beauty and have so much to offer coming from that experience. That's that's healing. That's being a healer. But in, in other words, there's a conflict between the social milieu that uh, the individual is in and their own sense of their budding, let's call it spiritual gift. Yes. And if they are actually, you know, some of these women heard spirit encouraging them and letting them know that they were safe and on the right path. And this was very, very helpful. Um, I, in, for me, I did have this experience of negative voices in my head, very alarming um, experience in my early 20s. And I, so I, I knew this wasn't necessarily what was happening to other people, but I was pretty open about it. And I talked about it to be sure and was finding out from people I was close to that, no, they were not having um, these kinds of experiences. So I knew to get some help with that. And, and I really did through a traditional psychiatrist. Um, but what was interesting was she offered me medication. Yeah, I think it's a common thing right away for that, um, type of symptom. But I didn't, I didn't want that. I just knew I, I didn't want that. And I remember a few sessions in her name, Dr. Goldman. I don't think she's around any, any with us any longer. Um, but a few sessions in, she said to me, you know, Mary, if, if you don't want to hear those voices, I think you could just tell them to stop and leave you alone. And I was very surprised because I had tried interacting, being friendly. I mean, these were more my ways of, of doing things rather than setting boundaries. 
And so I actually did that. And that was the end of it. It never happened to me again. And that was very, very wonderful. Um, at the same time, it also closed down a part of me that had been more open to light and positive messages, a sense of that. And so that experience on the farm and going through that and having that healing through the soul clearing, it just, it just cracked my heart open. I, I, I could still feel it. It was just like, Wow, you know, there is, this is here, this is present, and I can connect with that without having to close it all down. And, and so that's been, that was a really important part of the beginning of my path in learning to do healing in this way. I used to know Wilson Van Dusen, uh, who was the chief psychologist at Napa State Hospital in California, uh, working with you know people who had been hospitalized for decades. Uh, he wrote a book called The Presence of Spirits in the World of Madness, and uh, based on the writings of Swedenborg, how sometimes we think people are are experiencing psychosis where using the medical model whereas a, a spiritual model might uh, suggest a completely different way to to look at this that there are in his words good spirits and bad spirits and the people who were plagued by bad spirits also had good spirits who were trying to help them it's very interesting i love um his work in writing about Swedenborg and who lived at a time when he could openly talk about his um, interdimensional experiences, viewing heaven, viewing hell, being taken on tours by angels and, you know, a Renaissance man. He could do everything. He could make a clock, you know, as well as um, un understand intricate crafts and do them. Um it, that was, he could do that. And yeah, to be open, he, young, he listened to his patients that were in these hospitals. And that's how he also um, had a lot of interaction with uh, beings that weren't physical, but he could see them and hear them. And I mean, I even wonder, you know, when he came up with the collective unconscious and his whole explanation, if that just was in a better way of being bringing semi-acceptable information forward into psychiatry at that time, because um, he could have explained it in many other ways, um, having had those experiences. And he wondered, he even says um, in his journal, The Red Book, that he was worried, am I doing schizophrenia, he asks himself, you know through having these experiences. So it's pretty amazing to me that with openness, we find out many people are having experiences that they, that bring them comfort that come from beyond their day-to-day -day lives, you know, that they feel a presence, that there's something there. And why not, why not um, use that and, acknowledge it if it comes to you as as your purpose which it did to me i understand from our previous interview what, uh, what came to you was working with guides and angels yes 
Yes, they were and, right there. And, and I presume that this is true of uh, many of the other healers you've studied. Yes, um, they talk about working with, they have a team um, that they're, they are working with that brings them information and helps them understand what's going on so they can explain it to the people that they're working with and give them, give, give people the ability to connect with their own guidance. I mean, I think that's the most important thing is if you can, if I can help someone understand that they have guidance within them that they can tap into, um, one of, one of my classes, um, that I, I really focus on is called, um, inner wisdom. How to connect into that, like moment to moment and live in a way that you're not in fear, but you're connected with this higher part of yourself. Um, with if you believe in angels, there will be angels. You know, um, spirit guides to me um, are angels. That if you recognize that they're there and very easy to communicate with, and that we have ways we can do that, and really be confident about what we're we're being guided to do, it's a a great way to live especially if you have problems and issues and are going through things, meaning you are human, um, to have that help. And I think we get that help because being human is very difficult. I think another characteristic that you've written about, uh, which seems important, is, is the idea of having somewhere a, a supportive community, or at least one other person who, who can acknowledge and uh, uh, the depths with, within one, where other people might be labeling you as a deviant or a crazy person. At least one other human being can recognize that there's a potential spiritual gift there. People are having these experiences. Maybe if we don't treat them as a serious illness and try to medicate it out of them or isolate them and get them away from society, but maybe if we um, help them through it, understand it and help them through it. Like, okay, go ahead and have this experience. You're safe in this environment. You come out of it um, having grown and being um, whole, being more whole rather than pushing it all down. Uh, I know that was my experience that as people helped me through what I was experiencing and knowing there could be a community that made such a difference. Mary Baxter, it's been a real pleasure once again having this heartfelt conversation. I think uh, there may be thousands of people out there whose lives can be touched by a, a discussion like this. Uh, I know some of the greatest healers uh, and inspiring people that I've ever experienced had gone through periods of being really dejected and, and feeling rejected. And when one person reaches out and acknowledges them, it makes a huge difference. So uh, I think this video is uh, likely to have that impact. So thank you so much for being with me once again. And also, I, I want to let our viewers know we're going to have a, another discussion uh, on the, how to use a pendulum, which is a very important technique in your own work. 
Yes, it is. I look forward to that. And thank you so much for today. Wonderful. 